Welcome to the BizTimes MKE Podcast. I'm BizTimes Associate Editor Arthur Thomas. At the start of every year, BizTimes Media hosts an annual Economic Trends Breakfast. At this year's event, the coronavirus was barely on the radar of our panelists and attendees. A few months later, the virus has changed nearly everything about our economy. We decided to invite our panelists, including American Family Insurance CEO Jack Salzweedle, Husco International CEO Austin Ramirez, Grafe CEO John Kissinger, and UW Foundation President Michael Knetter, back for a second look at the economy in our Economic Trends 2.0 webinar. This week's podcast features the Q&A portion of the event, moderated by BizTimes editor Andrew Weiland. To hear the full event, which was sponsored by Associated Bank, visit biztimes.com slash trends 2.0. Let's listen in. Getting started, I want to ask the panel, how have you been handling um, this pandemic period as leaders uh, of your companies? We heard some comments about adjustments your companies have made, but as leaders of your teams, of your people, how have you been, been handling this? What have been the biggest challenges you've faced in this process as leaders? And what are you most proud of? Um, I'll start with Austin for, for that one. Great. Well, I mentioned a little bit of this. Communication is really important. So uh, transparent, open, frequent communication, but communication that also is tinged with optimism. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to get down these days with all the negative news. And our job as leaders is to be open and transparent, but also to have some optimism. Um, you know, I also, you know, it's our job to make the tough decisions right now. Um, it's not a real fun time to be a leader when you've got to implement layoffs or furloughs or other things like that. But, but our job is to, is to protect our organizations for the long run. Uh, and I think it's really important that, that we do that. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say, and I mentioned this with the mass project, I think it looks different in every company, but, but finding ways to deploy people and your competencies in ways that serve the community, I think is good for the business term. I think it's good for your people. And, um, I think it, it's a really important part of response to crisis to have private business step in and make a positive impact in the community. Uh, same question for Jack. As a leader, how have you been? How have you been handling this with your team? Yeah, I, I would say you know I agree. The communication side of this is, is probably the most critical piece of it. Um, I think it's. I think what your workforce wants to see in a situation like this as much as possible is, is can, can we find a way to, to a path, kind of a pathway to break out from some of the things that maybe have held us back and we're going to take a while for us to, to uh, address. And does this become an accelerant and, and allow us uh, almost a burning platform to be able to uh, uh, leapfrog and, and jump into things that we weren't, um, doing before. We've always talked about, you know, having a funding really going after high, high level talent as an organization. This allows us um, the opportunity to do that. And, and when you, and I think as a, as a leader, if you have the courage to kind of, kind of tackle that, um, you, you then start to see that the people who um, are reporting up the organization are, are, um, enthusiastic about it, energized about it. And it actually, um, it actually allows you then to start thinking very differently about what you do. So, I mean, obviously you got to walk the talk, 
Um, I mean, you got, you have to be clear in your communication and all of that, but I think this idea of, of having courage and, and, um, you know, Austin talked about optimism. I, I mean, I'm a very optimistic person. I think we will come back and I think we will be stronger as a result of this. Um, your workforce wants to see that, wants to understand that and, and believe it in, in their leadership. And so I think for leaders, it's, it's, um, believing that yourself and then being able to, to um, to let your workforce see that, and then creating this this kind of pathway to break out of some things that maybe have been help holding you back. Okay, thank you. Next question is from the group is, um, do you feel that the time we've come to a point where the time is right to reopen the economy, or maybe is it too soon? And what is your company doing to prepare moving forward as as the economy is reopening. Um, John, uh, we'll, we'll start with you on that one. Sure, Andrew, thanks. I do feel that it's a proper time to reopen the economy. I know that, uh, and I agree with uh, Mike that there, or, or Jack, that we may have some fits and starts as we do that, but um, we need to do it at some point. Even within our company, we talked about what leaders do. You have to make decisions where there's um, there's there's not the data available so everybody looks to and so we've started to talk about when are we going to reopen now we're not um, going to be on the leading edge of that but we're certainly setting timelines we've actually reopened we have eight offices one of them has reopened uh, we'll be reopening the other seven as time goes on and um, so uh, it's appropriate to do that now I think the leader has to be the one to make the call when it's the time to do that and kind of uh, push everyone who's uh uh, not quite sure when the right time to do it is. Okay. I want to get to uh, some of these audience questions as they're starting to come in. We've had a few about office space, the office real estate. And with so much talk about um, remote work during this time and how well it's gone, um, what about the future of office space? Um, do we need office space anymore? Are we all going to be able to work remotely? Is there still value in office space? Uh, Jack, I'll start with you. Of course, you know, you American family is making a huge investment in, in a new office in downtown Milwaukee. Um, what do you think now after we've, we've gone through this, this period, the future of office spaces and the need of office space? Yeah. I mean, we've made a big, investment in Milwaukee with Summerfest and the Brewers and then the, the Mandel building. Um, I mean, we're, we are reassessing all of our real estate right now. And, um, you know, we were at about 25% um, remote work prior to COVID. We're at 98% now. I don't think it's not going to go back to 25%, but it's not going to stay at 98% either, I don't believe. And so um, I think most companies, uh, in our situation are trying to reassess that, um, that situation right now. And I, I do think, you know, part of the reason that we've been successful with moving people remote is kind of the, the, um, the, the human capital deposits that we've made in each other over the last 20 years, 30 years. Um, you know, we've being proximate allows you to have trust with people, develop relationships and, and when you have that going and you have to have something like remote work happen very quickly with COVID, it allows you to draw on, on that as you now move to remote and as we work through remote. 
Um, I, th I think there's still a need for that uh, long term, um, that, that uh, having everybody remote um, all the time is not going to be um, exactly with that, that item that's going to build the trust that, that uh, we've been able to draw upon right now. So I think, you know, real estate, um, do you end up at 50%? And do you, do we, um, you know, do we have to reconfigure our, our um, offices so that there's more space there? And maybe we need, maybe we need uh, double the space per employee or something. So there, there might be a situation where um, corporate real estate is impacted by it, but it's not to the extent that everybody's going remote, remote work. Because I think people that if you do feel that people are going to want to come back or you need to give them that flexibility and you need some of that, then the office spaces that we've got probably need to be reconfigured and, and that could impact the real estate other people need as well. Andrew, if I'll, I could, if throw I that could question to you as well, one. because you're in a new office. Andrew, John, so what was do you think about the future of office space? Yeah, well, uh, much like Jack said, I, you know, there's been a long-term trend in office space to make uh, the, uh, to provide more collaborative space and provide for more interaction between employees. And, um, and that wasn't because it was a fad. I mean, there was a real advantage to that. And right now we're all working remotely and we think, wow, this is great and it works pretty well, but we're going to find out soon that we missed that. So I think, uh, the office market isn't doomed as, and also I think there may be a trend uh, to space people out a little more that might uh, counter uh, some of the uh, less employees working in a space, but more space per employee. But, you know, I do think the office market has been contracting uh, for a while. I don't think this will necessarily stop that, uh, but that will provide opportunities much as what happened in retail, the office um, office owners are not just going to go in a corner and curl up. They're going to try to, make investments in their building that make their their facilities that make them more attractive in the new world. So I think it will lead, you know, some will fail, but others will uh, benefit from uh, the realignment of how the office market works. So it's not gloom and doom, uh, but it'll definitely be a big, uh, uh, there'll be a realignment in the way people feel um, about office design and the way people feel about um, leasing space. Next, I want to ask a question for Austin. Um, we've had several questions from audience members about supply chain issues and um, just how that world looks, you know, in in the new normal, new abnormal, what we want to, whatever we want to call it. Um, Austin, I want to ask you: Is Husco looking for alternative supply chain sources right now? Number one. Number two, I want to ask you: Do you anticipate? A, a massive amount of reshoring um, in the next year and beyond. Do you think there are going to be, a, is there going to be a big push for manufacturing and, and, and industries to um, come back to the United States? So yes, we're always looking for new supply sources. Uh, no, I don't think there's going to be a, a massive amount of reshoring. I think, you know, somebody mentioned earlier the coronavirus as an accelerator of trends and coronavirus has certainly accelerated the pre-existing trend towards more nationalism from a global um, geopolitical perspective um, and the move of supply chains to be more regional. But even so for us, and I think for a lot of manufacturing companies, the focus is going to continue to be on 
um, flexible, resilient supply chains, not necessarily 100% local supply chains. And I think that somebody mentioned the N95 mask situation. I think that's a really interesting example because there's this rush right now to localize all the entire N95 supply chain in the United States. And that, that's fine, but I think what we'll find is in, you know, one, it's gonna increase the, the cost of these products. And two, in the next crisis, N95 masks aren't gonna be what we need. We need something else. So this idea that we can nationalize everything that we could potentially need during a crisis, I think is, is a false one. And I think instead the focus should be on developing supply chains that are, again, robust and agile, and yes, perhaps more regional in nature than they've been in the past, but I don't think that uh, the answer is just to uh, source everything in the immediate vicinity of, of where you build product. I wanna um, ask Mike a question related to this, um, this sort of trade issue. You know, it, it, it certainly appears that there are growing tensions between the United States and China. Um, you listen to the rhetoric coming from the president. Um, are you concerned about that, Mike? I mean, are, are we going to see a big shift away from globalization? What What are the ramifications um, on a macroeconomic level of all that? Yeah, so I think uh, Austin said it well. We've already shifted toward economic nationalism uh, to a degree. And I think that is a tendency that's likely to continue. And it's not happening just in the United States. Uh, there is this wave of populism. And I think a sense that the major beneficiaries in the developed world of globalization have really been highly educated white collar people um, who can extend, you know, kind of the span of their economic impact by running companies that have labor force, you know, scattered across the globe. And the U.S. Uh, has a lot of well-trained, really uh, adept uh, C-suite talent, and globalization has helped U.S. companies do really well, uh, but it hasn't helped rank-and-file workers as much because it's introduced a lot of new competition for them. And I think that's really what this backlash uh, was about in the first place. Um, and, you know, in a sense, we finally did something about it when probably the damage was done. I mean, I think really the integration of the global economy had more or less been completed almost. And we probably had suffered um, what, whatever income inequality was going to arise from that. And, you know, we're at a point where most workers were in the service sector, as we know, and probably weren't facing that kind of competition. But nonetheless, we're, uh, we're retrenching on that. And I think that will come at some modest cost of efficiency and GDP growth, as Austin noted. There's a reason these supply chains were global, and it was cost. Mike, another question for you, this one from the audience. What positive or negative impact does zero or potentially negative interest rates have to the economy? And also, what are the risks of the Fed putting so much liquidity into the equity and bond markets if there is a second wave of the virus in the fall? Well, as Powell noted, uh, there's no limit to what the Fed can do in terms of liquidity. 
And, you know, in the short term, that does help markets function well. But what it prevents is some of the, you know, shakeout that would occur in a normal recession where weaker firms, less efficient firms go out of business and those resources are reallocated. Now, maybe you don't actually want that to happen in a recession caused by coronavirus because the companies that get punished the most, there may have been nothing wrong with them. But when the Fed nonetheless steps in, you know, for a second time, buying up a lot of securities that normally were off limits to the Fed in the, in the, under the old rules pre-great financial crisis, uh, the consequence of that is just it stunts the reallocation process in the economy, uh, kind of papers over issues, and little by little will become a drag on long-term growth. Um, you know, low and negative interest rates put a lot of stress on the financial system, uh, the banking system in particular. It's harder for them to make money. And I think we don't yet know, uh, you know, in the final analysis, what the long-term impact of that will be. One of the things that's helped the U.S. economy be really successful throughout its history is having the, the deepest and best developed financial market in the world. You know, we're able to get capital to businesses at all stage of development like no one else. And uh, the banking system is a big part of that. So we should be concerned about it and keep our eye on it. But I think for now, you know, the Fed's going to have to keep rates low to facilitate whatever we can in economic activity and keep people alive. And that's probably the right thing to do in a, in a coronavirus shock situation. I want to ask uh, the group about consumer behavior that they anticipate. Um, and this is the audience question. What key factors do you believe consumers are looking for to improve their confidence to increase access to businesses? Um, and another related one is, you know, what will people's lifestyle be in the new normal? Uh, people taking, getting less haircuts, less travel, et cetera. Um, Jack, I'll, I'll start with you on, on that one. I think the first thing is, e I mean, ease of use in a, in a environment where things are shut down or partially shut down, the ability to make it easy for consumers to, um, to be able to use your product or your services is number one. I think the safety aspect, um, is right next to it, uh, up there where, um, the customers have to feel that it's that it's a safe place to, um, to do business, whether that's a digital and a cyber issue or whether it's a, a physical um, safety issue. Um, so I think, I think there's ways, you know, there's ways to tackle that. There was a, there's a great uh, New Yorker article by Atal Gawande yesterday or the day before about the four things that he felt could be done, you know, quickly to, to get things opening, which is masking people. It's some, type of standard physical distancing, it's, it's hygiene, it's washing your hands a lot during the day, and then it's asking basic questions, screening. And, um, you know, you can get that R number below one pretty quickly if, if you have a coordinated effort nationally to, to go there, and it wouldn't take long. So I think, I, think, I think companies need to concentrate on the ease of use, the safety, things like that. But I think we also need to be pushing our, our leaders in this 
where, where Mike had mentioned this, this, this area of, of uh, disconnect um, that you see in Wisconsin or you see nationally. And, and uh, if, we, if we could do some of these basic things, I think, you know, the ability to open things up is, is really um, within the realm of things quickly. Uh, but in the absence of that, um, it's going to require companies to, um, to be dealing with this, this, this shifting of um, shifting from the government to private, you know, from we're not taking our orders from the CDC or from the state of Wisconsin in terms of returning to work. We, that's now being shifted on businesses. So we have to decide when it's safe for people to come back. We have to decide whether we've got procedures in place so that work comp claims that they might uh, employees might file if they get infected or whatever. I mean, that, that risk has been shifted to uh, and is the process of being shifted from uh, the government to the private companies. And so that's, what's going to, that's, what's going to limit us. All right. We're, we're running late on time. I do want to ask um, each of the panelists, what are the most important indicators you're watching to determine whether or how quickly the economy will recover? What, what are the indicators you have your eyes on? Um, let's start with, with Austin on that one. You know, I, things aren't going to go back to normal until we have a vaccine. All the things Jack talked about are, are, are great and things we should be doing to control the spread of the virus, but we don't get it back to any sort of normal until we have a vaccine. So we're paying attention to that. Uh, we're, we're watching our, you know, short-term order book, like four to eight weeks. Um, I think that's the only thing we can know right now. Anything further out than two months is just make-believe uh, at this point. And the, the last thing I'll say is I, we are really focusing on trying to understand what trends COVID-19 has accelerated, what aspect of our business COVID-19 has totally disrupted, and what are the second and third order effects of those things. And I don't have an answer to that, but I think the companies that are going to survive and thrive over the next five to 10 years are the ones that answer that best for their markets. Uh, what's accelerated, what's disrupted, what are the second and third order effects and how does that affect what you should be doing right now? John, how about you? What are the most important indicators you're watching to determine whether or how quickly the economy will recover? John, you're muted. Thanks, Andrew. I think one of the real challenges of this for leaders is it's very, it's very hard to find any uh, touchstone that you can rely on because the situation is so fluid. So I think everybody has to um, create different scenarios and then be able to pivot from one to the other, depending on how things unfold. Uh, with that being said, you know, in, in my business, we've been uh, uh, certainly looking at the retail sales, uh, manufacturing output, uh, things of that nature. I'll be very interested to see the first round of uh, the eight-week period on the first round of PPP. Uh, money is going to run out here soon, and will that lead to, I think, uh, that's been artificially um, keeping uh, some people employed, and you might see a spike in unemployment when, when the PPP money starts to run out, and as the $600 starts to run out, will things get worse before they get better? Um, but really, a lot of it is just, um, is just creating different scenarios and monitoring. As Jack said, they meet, his board meets, our board has been meeting on a weekly basis as well, and just trying to 
um, from week to week divine where things are going. So it's a very challenging because it is there. There are, there is no classic touchstone that I think anybody can rely on. Jack, same question for you. Uh, most important indicators you're watching to determine if and when and how quickly the economy will recover. Sure. So I'd say there's there's a lot of public uh, publicly available data. Uh, Mike was talking about conference calls and things like that. So we've got all of that um, that's coming at us. But then I think there's also all of us in each of our businesses has some type of proprietary knowledge around our customers and uh, supply chains and things like that. So whether it's digital traffic, for us, one of the major ones is miles driven. We can tell on a daily basis whether miles driven, and that's an indicator of people moving around. And we have seen an uptick in miles driven over the last um, two weeks. So I think we, we have uh, some insight there in terms of uh, people moving around and starting to be more active. And then with our, with our home business, we know what's going on in homes through home losses and things like that. So looking at the frequency of that, I think, I think it gets back to what proprietary information do you have as a, as a CEO or as a business owner that others might not have to give you insight and you, you kind of try to triangulate that against uh, publicly available information to give yourself some, some kind of uh, head start or insight against your uh, competitors. Mike, how about you? What's the most important indicator you're watching? Um, I think the answer to that, you know, we, as Jack said, there's a lot of data out there. You can get inundated with data on testing mm -hmm. and percent positive and, you know, hospitalizations, deaths. I'm interested in people's behavior. And what I would say uh, really is, is the true north here is, I don't know many people who really want to get this virus. So I think what Austin said is very important. Um, you know, until we have a vaccine, things aren't going to be normal. And you can talk about phase one, phase two, phase three uh, openings. I think our business is going to have a phase one, and then there's going to be a vaccine. Those are the two phases that really matter to me because I think most people don't want to get this virus. Uh, because of how much uh, damage it's done to people and the reporting that we've all seen. And, you know, maybe the fatality rates aren't that high, but the pictures don't look great. So I think people are very scared of it, um, whether that's right or wrong. And I think they're going to be very reluctant to go back to normal. And we probably can't force that. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm literally at this point now more interested in people's behavior than I am in a lot of the data that we see. And, you know, if you're leading a business, you need to take care of your people and pay attention to how they're feeling. And we're lucky in our business, you know, we can work remotely quite effectively. We had to cancel all of our in-person alumni events. They would have drawn in total a thousand people uh, for our spring alumni events. And we've had over 50,000 people watch our live stream uh, broadcast alumni events. So we've learned a lot from this and uh, we can be very productive without showing up at a physical location. But I think uh, others are right too. When it's safe, people will want to go back. You know, we may be safer at home, but many people find that they're happier at the office. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. We are indeed learning a lot. Uh, that'll, that'll do it for our conversation. I just want to quickly thank Mike, John, Austin, and Jack uh, for participating in, in the discussion today. Thank you all. 
This is Dan Meyer with BizTimes Media. You've been listening to the BizTimes MKE podcast. For more business news and insights, be sure to go to biztimes.com and subscribe to any of our daily e-newsletters and our magazine, BizTimes Milwaukee.